0: Hey fans of biblical genetics, thank you for tuning in. This is Dr. Rob. I'm in my backyard getting ready to go to work for the morning. I figure I'm going to record a real quick intro for my last episode in the fetal cell series. But before we get into the episodes, I want to give you a little anecdote about the joys of being a filmmaker. My last episode, I got it loaded onto the podcast engines and within a minute or two, Someone comes running in from the CMI warehouse, said, Rob, Rob, I'm listening to your episode. He's like, wow, that's really cool. I got a fan right here. He goes, did you hear this? I said, no. He said, you didn't listen to it before you loaded it? I said, no, I just exported it and loaded it. And so I started, I hit play. And there was a ghostly echo, something that I said like three quarters of the way through, like, I really appreciate you and, and things like that. Reflected onto the beginning. And it sounded like I said, shoot you when I come back, shoot you. And I was horrified. So I just went straight to the podcast thing, hit delete, went to my website, hit delete, went to YouTube, hit delete, just started from scratch. I didn't even know if the YouTube thing had a problem or not, I just just killed it all. And then I had to wait till I got home, I exported it again, it sounded okay this time. I watched the video, listened to the audio, everything was cool, but what a terrifying thing. I have no idea what happened and I don't know why that happened. I mean, of all the things to, to say for some reason, it lifted that up and dropped it into the beginning of my talk. So yes, my friends, being a content provider is a great joy and a great terror and things that are really weird happen that you don't expect. But if you are interested in being a content maker, contact me. I want to encourage you. I want to help you if I can, because I'm trying to do what God has enabled me to do, and I want you to do that also. So let me encourage you. Let me help you. But in the meantime, we've got some ground to cover, and this is about a 22-23 minute uh, audio recording you're about to hear on privacy and politics and stem cell research. Hello world and welcome to Biblical Genetics. I'm Dr. Rob. I'm coming to you today from the beautiful campus of the Arizona Christian University. I'm actually standing in the offices, the brand new offices, of the Creation Research Society. I came down here for our annual board of directors meeting and I'm using a university setting on purpose because I want to discuss politics, university research, and privacy. I'm just going to give you a very brief overview of some of the political things that have happened over the last several decades. The first thing I want to discuss is the Common Rule of 1981. This is the U.S. government trying to get in line with uh, international standards. And basically they just laid out a a set of rules for dealing with people. So privacy, informed consent, uh, paperwork, things like that, just to make sure that human rights aren't violated as we're doing research. This is a reaction to some of the earlier work where paperwork wasn't documented or where things were taken from people without their permission, then Nobel prizes were granted on that work and things like that. So it was a big brouhaha and we learned a lot of things about legal stuff and we said, okay, we want a common system instead of rules. So if you hear some construction noise in the background, don't worry about it. That's just improving our facilities. We're still kind of moving in. We're having some shelving installed in the laboratory area in the back. By the way, if you don't, know anything about the Creation Research Society. We are decades old, we're the oldest scientific society for creation research in the world. If you would like to know about membership, there'll be a link in the show notes or just go to creationresearch.org. So that happened during the Reagan years, I think that was his first year in office. Under George Herbert Walker Bush in 1990, a court case called Moore vs. Regents of the University of California happened. And here they decided, the courts decided that discarded tissue and cells from a patient are not the property of the patient, even if those things are used for commercial application and people are making money off of your cells or your liver or something like that. It's not yours anymore if it was discarded in a hospital. Now, that was 1990, that was way before we had the modern advent of personal genomics and personally identifiable material, which we'll get to at the end. In 1996, under the Clinton administration, the Dickey-Wicker Amendment was passed. This prevented federally funded researchers from creating or destroying human embryos. Well, that caused some problems. What is the definition of federally funded? Totally funded? Partially funded? Formally funded? And what do you mean the, the destruction, the harm caused the human embryos? What if you're just experimenting and not harming them? So all this legal stuff, all this wrangling, all this angst happened uh, when that law was passed, but that law is still on the books. It's still illegal in the United States to create or destroy a human embryo. In 2001 under the George W. Bush administration, basically the president said no new lines. He was aware of the stem cell research going on. He, he put a moratorium on the creation of any new lines. Now at the time, I was a little upset with this because I thought you should have said no lines at all. I thought maybe he should have just given a billion dollars. Granted, that raises questions about whether or not the government should be supporting research like that, but the government has lots of money. They give out lots of money. So I said they should give a billion dollars to adult stem cell research, and we would be the kings of the adult stem cell world. And in the end, I don't think the world could have condemned him for that because he made a moral decision and followed up with good science and in fact in retrospect that would have been an excellent decision because most of the advances in cellular research of this nature had been done with adult cells and not with fetal cells Now, George W Bush had an excellent quote let me read that to you he said embryonic stem cell research is at the leading edge of a series of moral hazards and I would refer you directly to my prior episode of Biblical Genetics, Embryonic Fetal Cell Research, Part 3, Ethics. Yes, the leading edge of a huge number of moral hazards. At the time, there were 60 to 70 cell lines um, that were in existence already. So you could get federal funding for working on those, but most of those weren't very practical. There's about 20 or 21 that settled that when the dust settles, okay, these are the ones that researchers wanted to use but they were a little angry because one, they couldn't continue research. They couldn't pull new cell lines. They couldn't get more uh, ethnic, ethnically diverse cell lines. That was a big problem. I mean, what good is studying things that occur in, you know, African-Americans if most of your cell lines are European derived? Interesting question. But the spillover effects of these governmental decisions were profound. When there is an, a reaction, there's always a counter reaction. And so one thing that happened after this Bush proclamation is that, uh, inducible pluripotent stem cell research took off. Now inducible means you can make something happen. Pluripotent means you can change it to, into anything. So if you have an inducible pluripotent stem cell, you can actually make a human being. If maybe you could take a skin cell and make it into an IPS. My first episode in this series, I discussed exactly that and when I said that researchers are on the edge of being able to create human beings from adult stem cells. Human adult cells to pluripotent stem cells to embryos, which could then be implanted and grow a baby. A second thing happened, and this is even more profound. Because of the limitations on federal research, multiple universities started canvassing money, hundreds of millions of dollars to set up private research institutions that don't have any caps placed upon it by the government. Just Harvard, one university in 2004, So only a couple years after that rule uh, for George W. Bush was enacted, they announced a new initiative where they were setting up a foundation to raise a hundred million dollars, which would include hundreds of researchers across all their various campuses and hospitals to do fetal cell research. And Harvard is not the only university that jumped on that bandwagon. We're talking about dozens of universities, hundreds of millions of dollars probably each. We don't know where they're getting their stem cell lines from. Yes, the U.S. government has been caught buying uh, abortion products for researchers to use. That is, people with federal grants have been buying abortion products to use in research. That might be where some of this is coming from, but in this case, it'd be private money doing that. But the fertility clinic industry is a huge contributor of embryological material that is being used in private foundations. We don't know how many there are. But in 2009, President Obama reversed the decision made during the Bush years, completely opening up the spectrum. Now, he also imposed a a tracking registry where he said, okay, we're going to have a lot more cell lines. You can make new ones according to these new uh, moral guidelines, ethical guidelines, but we're going to actually have them on a website. And so the NIH Human Embryonic Stem Cell Registry is online and anyone can go see it. Now, you remember a couple episodes ago where I talked about five cell lines that are being used? Yeah, that was the classic cell lines. On the Human Embryonic Stem Cell Registry, there are 485. The ones that are in private research institutions are in a black box. We have no idea how many lines, where they came from, and what they're doing with them. Okay, let's put all that politics aside and let's talk about something even more important, that is privacy. Privacy issues might be the wedge that we can use to drive the politics out of this situation. I know from some of the things that the policymakers have said and the the positioning that the industry has taken lately, that they understand that there's a problem specifically with the older cell lines. Permissions might not have been granted. Some of the documentation might have been lost or might not hold up in a modern courtroom. So they know that they might lose control of some of the older cell lines. And that's one reason why they're trying to move to new cell lines, but the public doesn't like the idea that children are being murdered and then that murdered child product is being turned into some industrial product or a medicine. Maybe privacy is the wedge that we can use to get a policy change. I know from some of the positions taken by some of the big players some of the policy changes and some of the wording and some of the documents that I've read that they understand there's a problem, especially with the older cell lines. There might not be proper documentation, They might not have gotten the correct sort of permissions. Those documents, if they even exist, might not uh, hold up in a modern court of law. And so they're like, well, we got to replace these things with something new. Whether or not you and I like that, this is what they're trying to do. But privacy is huge. Consider HEK 293. We know this comes from an abortion in the Netherlands in the early 1970s. We know the laboratory it was done in, and we know it was, in Leiden in the Netherlands we also know from some of the information that's been produced on the cell line over the years a lot of genetic information about this the the baby that this was taken from HEK 293 has the mitochondrial group U5A1A Well, mitochondria group H is the most common in Western Europe. U is, let's see, I have all the statistics here. U is 11% of the Western European population. Well, given the population of the Netherlands in 1971 of 13.12 million people, um, that's only 300,000 women would have had that mitochondrial group. So already, we've restricted now down to a pool of only about 300,000 people, uh, women specifically. But it's not just U, it's U5, that's only 7% of the people. But it's U5A, that's only about 5% of the people. U5A1A may be about 3% of the population. That is, 3% of the population that is female of reproductive age, because you can look at an age pyramid And you can estimate and say, okay, these are the women of reproductive age. But we can easily get it further than that because a lot of additional genetic data has been published for HEK 293, specifically one particular paper, they listed all of these single letters in that genome. Well, wait a minute. If you have a variant that's only found in like 5% of the population, well, if it's carried in that person, that's 80,000 times 0.05. You only need four or five of those sort of things to get down to a single person. Let me explain to you how in the early days of genetic testing, uh, these things were brought into a courtroom to prove guilt or innocence. One of the big strategies they would do, they look at a series of pieces of DNA and they say, okay, what fraction of the population has this? What fraction of the population has this? What fraction has this? Well, this is like 70% and this is 25% and this is 2%. The probability of any person having all three is 0.7 times 0.25 times 0.2. And that number gets very small very quickly. So if let's say um, you had 20 letters and you know, all the probability of those letters, you can multiply them all together and you can say something like only one out of 10 million people have this letter combination. Your honor, this person has that letter combination. They're probably guilty. Well, it's not good enough. Okay. Let's add another letter and another letter, and another letter. Now I was talking about talking about one out of a billion, one out of a trillion. The only way it's not this person is if the person has a twin brother but the person doesn't have a twin brother. Therefore they're guilty of the crime. Well, in this case of HEK 293, we can whittle this down very quickly to we know it's a woman that has these letters, but that's not personally identifiable information. That's just saying that statistically it's only one person to get it personal you would have to do something that they've done in a lot of cold cases. Like the first big one that was ever solved was called the golden state killer. I'm not going to mention the person's name. All I'm going to say is that this person lived in California and they were a wicked, disgusting, horrible individual that killed a lot of people and raped a lot of women and left DNA behind. And so decades later, some researchers, brilliant people, they took the DNA, they looked at the letters, they worked up a genetic analysis and submitted it to a website called gedmatch.com. Now GEDmatch is a website where anyone can load their own personal DNA onto the website. So if you go to 23me.com or ancestry.com, you get your ancestry report where you can also download your DNA and then give it away for free to this website. Well, that's fine because most of the time it doesn't matter unless you're trying to hide like you're a murderer and you know, your second cousin has submitted DNA to GEDmatch.com. That means they can identify your second cousins. And then by using pretty easy genealogical software, you can build a family tree and say, oh, this person right here is the only male that's a second cousin to this person. Let's go look at this person. That's what they did. They got a warrant, they followed the guy around, I think what they did is they grabbed the coffee cup that he had thrown into the trash, they swiped it, and it was a genetic match to the crime scene evidence, and the guy was caught and arrested, and he'll be in prison the rest of his life. It would be possible to work up such a thing four fetal cell lines meaning you could identify the mother the father brothers and sisters aunts and uncles this is terrifying I wouldn't want to be that woman I wouldn't want to be all of a sudden have the the world pounding on my door asking me for interviews or people throwing rocks at me or anything like that because this could happen now i wouldn't normally say anything like this but i know that people in the industry understand this and if i thought of it i'm probably not the first person to think of this but someone could pull a wikileaks someone could pull a um they they could set up a laboratory either a fake laboratory or real laboratory and they could request samples of all these different cell lines and they could genetically analyze them and then release them now, you have to sign waivers when you get these things, but I'm guessing that you could probably get them in a lot of different ways or maybe in a country that doesn't have laws that we have. But even so, a waiver, I mean, once the information is out, it's out. What, how can you legally sue someone who's done something like this? That's an interesting question. Or maybe someone will decide it's worth being sued. It's worth getting this information out because I want to stop the abortion industry. Now, someone who's gone to a fertility clinic and has had embryos created and frozen well they don't want those embryos later on they're just going to decay until they finally uh, die away and then they'll be thrown away or maybe they'll be thrown away before they get to the decrepit state so a lot of fetal tissue research is being done on these spare embryos well when the man and the woman went to the clinic did they understand that their extra embryos might be used for medical research or specifically potentially privacy destroying medical research? I mean, we know that the mother of HEK 293 had other children. We know the mother of Percy 6 had other children. The parents are probably still alive. The children are probably still alive. We don't know who the fathers were. We think in one case we might know who the father was, but it's not certain. What if the father wasn't the father and that's why the abortion happened, it might destroy a marriage? What if a politician was involved? What if a, a religious leader was involved? A community, a paragon, a virtue, all of a sudden is found to have an illegitimate child, perhaps with even an underage woman? There's a lot of really sticky, ugly things that can happen here, and a good sleuth might uncover a few of these facts. But once knowledge is learned, knowledge leaks out, it would be really hard to keep that under wraps. Therefore, don't do this. However, the embryonic stem cell registry does have email addresses associated with all of those lines. So I am saying that some uh, reporter could do a detailed study and com- communicate with all these people, contact them, and ask them what went on. and. I bet we can learn a lot of very interesting information that way. But I wouldn't want just every Joe Blow to be out there firing off angry emails. That's not going to advance us at all. We need a very sober, dispassionate analysis before we can draw conclusions and then make policy decisions. As a group, as a, a group of Christians who hate abortion and we want to affect change, we want to do things in a way with the most potential impact. Not fritter ourselves away chasing at every little stray thing, but actually to to build a consensus view of an issue, maybe issue a policy statement or something like that. And so I'm hesitating here. And I know I'm, I'm talking in circles, but it's because this is a very difficult political situation, and yet I think we can probably do something huge if we have the right mindset. Okay, that's a wrap on our four-part series on the use of fetal cells in science and medicine. Just to summarize what we discussed, in part one, we talked about what we are able to do today, what we're on the verge of doing in stem cell and fetal cell technology. In part two, we outlined the five classic cell lines that have been used for over the last few decades, To do things like make medicines and immunizations and things like that in part three we delved into the realm of genetics and discuss how difficult it is and how there are moral compromises and uncertainties everywhere we go and the fact that these uh cell technologies are part of our daily life even though we didn't even realize it and we asked some open-ended questions on what we're supposed to do and how we address these things in our religion and in our our society. In summary, fetal cell technology is troubling, but listen to the words of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 12 verses 2 and 3. He's talking about the Pharisees. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known Therefore, what you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed from the rooftops. Now, I don't know about you, but I yearn for redemption. I yearn for the return of Jesus Christ. He has promised that he's coming back and he's going to set all things right. So, all these struggles that we have with fetal cell technologies and with medical practices that really trouble us ethically and morally and spiritually. These things are going to go away, but they haven't yet. So one of the big purposes behind the series that I've done is just education. I know that I left a lot of hanging questions that I didn't answer fully and some of them don't have full answers and some of them would take a dissertation to answer well, but the point is that in studying these things, we learn. By learning, we think through issues, we can better resolve our position and our responses to other people, and we can take better action in the future for past mistakes. I really think the Christian community let down their guard here. I don't think we saw this coming, and if someone did, well, I didn't hear about it. I guess most of you probably didn't either. It's like, you know, silent voices crying in the wilderness while well, they're silent or they're not heard by millions of people. Therefore, they, the word didn't get out, but the word is starting to get out. We're starting to see the trend, the direction where we can go in science. And there's some places we don't want to go. But the only way the government, the industry and the scientific community is not going to go there is if we raise a big ruckus so i hope something i've said in these four episodes is going to help you to raise that ruckus on buymeacoffee.com brian m stephanie s jeff w and logan k thank you guys you're awesome on patreon.com my long-term supporters ken f and dave h you are in a tier well above everybody else i i can't believe how much you've helped here Thank you so much, but also Adam B. M. Matske and Rob S. You're at the top level. Daniel P., James R., Jeff V. D., Mark K. You guys are in the middle. And Jonathan P. and Ted H., you are not forgotten. I am thankful for all the help that I get, but the best thing that you could do for me, the best thing you could do for biblical genetics, beyond anything, is to tell other people about it.